This is Romel. And this is Twanda. We are the co-hosts of Girl Can I Ask You Something podcast. Where you get to be a fly on the wall listening to conversations between two best girlfriends. Take a quick listen. Romel on cooking during the pandemic. Every day it's like another day on chop, you know, the food network, <laughs> you know. My thoughts on Issa Rae's new movie. Oh, I love everything Issa Rae does. Yeah. Until then. <laughs> Ramel's favorite topic. We're talking about orgasms, girl. Talking, orgasms. Yeah. It's like one of my favorite topics. We like to laugh, but we don't always agree. It was a great idea. <laughs> no, I, I like it. Was a bad, idea. bad idea. <laughs> if you like what you heard, Girl, Can I Ask You Something podcast releases new episodes every Tuesday. You can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms or girlpodcast.com. That's girl with three R's. Welcome to the SOAR podcast. Thank you for your support. If you want to continue to support this podcast, there are a few things you can do for me. Please like, subscribe, and share. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, I would love it if you would give me a five-star rating. And if you really feel motivated, go ahead and write a review. So welcome to SOAR, the Sisters Overcoming and Rising podcast. I'm Dr. Stephanie, your host, and I'm here to help women overcome limiting beliefs so that they can live their best lives. Sisters, come together now, come together now. It's time to help each other out, help each other out. It's time for transformation, time for healing. You've got the potential, you've got the power now. Sisters, overcoming and rising. Inspiration, interviews, and more. At this point, I would like to introduce my special guest who's going to help us dive into this topic. My special guest is Tiffany Jeffers. Tiffany Jeffers is an assistant professor of law and legal practice at Georgetown University Law Center. She previously served on the faculty of Penn State Dickinson Law as an adjunct professor at American University Washington College of Law. Tiffany writes about racial inequities in the juvenile justice system and legal education reform. Before transitioning into academia, Tiffany served as an assistant state's attorney in Baltimore County, Maryland. She tried misdemeanor and felony cases before the district and circuit courts of Baltimore County. She spent time in sex offense and the child abuse unit, the juvenile division, and the felony trial team. Prior to her work as a prosecutor, Tiffany was a judicial law clerk to the Honorable Zenora Mitchell Rankin of the Superior Court of the District of Columbia. She earned a BA in political science from Spelman College and a JD from Penn State University Dickinson Law. You will get to hear all about being a black woman in America, thoughts on the 2020 election. Welcome to SOAR, Tiffany. Thank you, Stephanie. It's great to be here and I appreciate the invitation. I just want to thank you so much for joining this special post-election edition of the radio show and our discussion on the topic, Black Women in America, thoughts on the 2020 election. So what are your thoughts on this election? Well, my thoughts on this election are that if the Democrats are successful in the presidential election, then that is owed solely to the Black woman vote because we sustain the Democratic Party electorally, as well as in the popular vote for Senate and House of Representative national elections and any state elections where people of color and Democrat candidates are successful. Yeah, I agree with that. Black women really have been pulling the weight for the Democratic Party for a long time now. It was it was interesting because I, I saw something that pointed out that the second highest voting block for the Democratic Party in this election was actually black men. And I know as black women, we vote over 90 percent for the Democratic Party. And this time there were some black men who voted a little bit more for Trump than they did the last time. But are we giving them a bad rap by not acknowledging that they are the second largest voting block? 
I don't think we're giving black men a bad rap, but I think it is critical to point out the reality that there exists this misogynoir sect of black men that are damaging to particularly black women and their misogynistic, chauvinistic belief system. And that they latch on to the rhetoric that President Trump has spewed over the last four years. Um, based in misogyny, based in capitalism. And I think we have to acknowledge that. It doesn't do a disservice to the rest of the black men that are supportive of black women, but to not acknowledge the reality that this group, the sect within population exists is a disservice to the work of the black community holistically. Yeah, it's. I think it's a very nuanced argument. So we have to acknowledge the ones who are sort of with us teaming with us fighting side by side but also truly address like you said this this sub segment of misogynistic capitalistic men who and it looks like they had an effect i think 50,000 votes or so went to Kanye West now one of the main reasons that i wanted to have this discussion is because you wrote a very poignant op-ed for the USA today entitled as a black female law professor, I'm nurturing a system that doesn't protect people like me. It was a brilliant read. And as I read it, I could feel the cognitive dissonance and the struggle that you were describing like deep in my bones. So please tell us more about that conflict. Thank you for your compliments on that on the essay. I, it was a heartfelt piece. And I felt very exposed in writing it. But it was also very healing for me personally. And I'm very grateful that it's resonated with people. The dissonance is very real and has been ever present throughout the entirety of my career as a Black person in America, because as I discuss, and I'm certainly not the first person by any stretch of the imagination to talk about the foundation of the American legal system being built on slavery, but as a Black person in America, any job you feel, any job you do, you're going to feel that dissonance because mm -hmm. we were brought here as property. Our ancestors were brought here as property and working through this system have created what exists now as our freedoms and rights, but that has not always been ever present. And so we are part of this foundation of this country, but in a way, um, in a way that I think is felt in our bones and in our DNA, but in, not in the same way as white people. We believe in America, and I, I don't, I shouldn't say we, I shouldn't proclaim to speak for all Black people. I feel connected to this country, and I believe in the ideals of this nation. I love uh, the Constitution, and the Declaration of Independence is a powerful document to me. Just the idea that freedom could exist for all people equally, that was novel, when it was written. They were not living in a time with many democracies across the world. And that was the ingenuity of that document to me is profound. And I think it was universally magnificent. And so I appreciate that. I have to also sit with the reality that while this brilliance was being manifested, these same people owned humans as property. And those humans were my ancestors. And so, and they didn't consider them to be humans. They considered them to be somewhere in between a human and a table to sit with that reality of the fact that these individuals could create such a magnificent piece of work that changed the landscape of the world and how people and societies are governed while also having this horrific system in place, it's, it's hard to deal with. And that horrific system has navigated our laws since inception because the founders were obsessed with property rights and they created a law based on the property that they owned the people, you know, the enslaved individuals. Our entire legal system is based on property rights. And so that's why I say the dissonance that I deal with stems from the fact that I really do believe in the American Constitution and rule of law and what we have created as a system theoretically, but in practice, it has been flawed. As you were speaking, one of the things that came to me is that I feel like as a black woman and as many of us as black women, we are in love with the ideal of America. You know, just like you said, the Constitution is this magnificent document and the ideal that we strive towards in this country. I think I feel very connected to that. But then sometimes there's that cognitive dissonance when you realize that that is not reality. And I feel like it happens again and again, right? I may be in love with the ideal, 
and things are going well and then something happens whether it's police brutality or something else that makes me realize uh oh that's that's the dream that's not really the reality and i kind of get knocked off my <laughs> off my step um and then i have to recover and recalibrate you also in your op-ed article talked about being a prosecutor in baltimore and how you naively were thinking that the system you were enforcing would also protect you and then realizing that usually it does not. What was that like? That was difficult because I was a prosecutor in a jurisdiction in Baltimore County where 66% of African-American people were prosecuted for crimes and the office had less than four prosecutors total. Wow. Less than four African-American prosecutors total. Mm-hmm. And so it was difficult to enforce laws against people that I also understood were not presented with a fair shot in some instances, but also dealing with the reality that I was helping victims who were truly victims of serious and violent crimes. You know, the reality is that Black people commit violent crimes and white people commit violent, all types of people commit violent crimes, commit harms upon their communities and and the communities at large. And so what I saw was inequities in how that system was promulgated, particularly against black people. So Mm -hmm. the fair shot wasn't starting at the same point. Two people could come in and have the same offense, but their background spoke more indicatively of what their outcome would be versus the crime itself. And that was a hard truth to realize. I went into the position thinking that I was going to be able to just evenly across the board apply the law and enforce the law, wherein, you know, as the prosecutor, I had a huge amount of discretion, but it ultimately wasn't all up to me. Outcomes weren't always up to me. You know, you're dealing with probation officers who are filing violations. You're dealing with the judges who have the ultimate sentencing power, defense attorneys in different instances, uh, witnesses and victims and people who want to testify, people who don't want to testify. So there are a lot of uh, forces at play where in some instances my hands were tied and and a harsher outcome happened many times for black defendants versus their white counterparts. And that was a hard reality to live with, despite my best efforts to employ these laws fairly across the board. Some things were out of my hands and and the the system is unfair. All that and the outcomes, it was disparate. The outcomes are generally always harsher for African-American defendants. Well, I applaud the work that you did there because that had to be heart-wrenching once you saw it. I can understand when you first go into it and you think that you can make a difference and you can make a change. But once you see that you're not making that difference and you see that people who look like you are being punished for for no good reason other than the fact that they look like you, that has to be heart-wrenching. Now we have, fingers crossed, hopefully our new vice president-elect is also or was a prosecutor and she's gotten a lot of criticism for being a prosecutor what would you say to the people who criticized her for being a prosecutor and how that affects her view her treatment of of people in the black community or do you agree with some of the criticisms that she's gotten around that i'm a, a staunch defender of kamala harris and her work in the prosecutor's office at all levels because as a black woman working doing that type of work it's not easy and as a black woman as you know stephanie we're always going to be held to some higher standard Mm -hmm. to produce these amazing (laughs) results that no one else is held to that standard and so i defend her her work and i believe in her platform and am a huge supporter and fan of of of, uh, senator harris when you're in the da's office as a prosecutor, you have, depending on your jurisdiction, most prosecutors have a certain level of discretion, but that discretion doesn't mean you can't enforce the laws when they're broken. You can't just not prosecute offenses that violate the state or county laws. And so if a crime is committed, you know, you move forward on that case if the evidence supports it. And then, um, you know, you can, there are things, systems in place where you can consider mitigation, you know, things that the person is doing to better themselves towards rehabilitation. 
uh, sentencing recommendations. We had in Maryland what was called probation before judgment. So it was essentially an opportunity for a defendant that was charged with a crime to correct their action before actually being sentenced. And so a, a lot of people take advantage of those types of programs, drug court. But the reality is what people aren't understanding as they criticize Senator Harris and her prosecutorial record is that statistically, crimes are committed within the same racial community. So for every Black defendant that uh, Senator Harris prosecuted as an, a DA, she was very likely protecting and, and providing justice for a Black victim. And I worked incredibly hard to serve victims, bring closure to them and their families, and heal communities when possible. And sometimes that means extracting people out of the communities. And yes, sometimes that means extracting Black people out of communities. And and we don't, we as prosecutors don't always have the final authority on what happens to that person once extracted. We can re make recommendations for rehabilitation, but we also function within a punitive system. So there is a punishment component to our criminal justice system. And it's, that's the way it's set up. And so it would be against the oath that we take as prosecutors and lawyers more generally not to function within the system as it's set now you can work to make the system more fair and equitable but you can't just not follow the law and so i, I think people have a misconception of number one how much authority the prosecutor has number two the types of offense that are prosecuted and how those offenses affect the black community holistically and number three, how systems can be changed from within realistically. Thank you for clearing that up. I think that that was a very succinct explanation. And I'm not in the field of law, but to me, that made sense intuitively, right? You're a prosecutor, you're prosecuting people who commit crimes. You're not picking and choosing to specifically only prosecute, you know, black men, as the argument goes. And on the other side of that, you are working on the side of victims, which oftentimes are black women. So it seems like in this argument for people who still, once that's explained to them, choose to be criticize her, there's a little bit of that misogyny that we talked about earlier and that lack of the the lack of protection for black women or not considering that those victims need to be protected and somebody has to protect them and that that is very valuable yeah thank you for saying that it, it, it's it's difficult because there are interlocking systems of oppression at play here and so, yes, these black men that are prosecuted that uh, are the foundation of the critiques against Senator Harris, I would say that they did not, sometimes people didn't have a chance to make good decisions. When you're in a system, a continued cycle of poverty and lack of education, what choice do you really have? And I often say that if you're prosecuting, quote unquote, dope boys on the street, well, some of the schools in in urban areas and black communities don't have air conditioning or heat in you know season and intense climate changes and intense climate and weather free lunch isn't provided to these communities and so what's the alternative to either sell drugs on the street to make money to support your family or sit in this building where you're not supported you're hungry you're hot or cold and possibly in danger because the police are now in the school systems. Is that really a choice to make a good life decision? It's not. And so while I understand that at very young ages, that quote unquote choice is taken away from many, many black males, the law doesn't consider that yet. And mm -hmm. so again, as a functioning, as a person, a lawyer functioning within the system as it's set up, we operate within the confines of the law and work internally to make it better. But that doesn't necessarily mean we can't just not prosecute the crime. Now, sometimes there are ways you can go around a full prosecution or you can um, put some rehabilitary rehabilitation measures in place pre-prosecution, pre-trial. But that's not always the instance. And then sometimes those measures don't work for everyone. There at some point must be um, responsibility taken for choices. The system can set people up for success. It can set people up for failure. But there is, on some level, I believe, personally, individual choice um, mm -hmm. that does come into play. Yes, I just said 
choice is extracted, you know, on some level systematically, but there is always going to be the ability to choose and make decisions individually every step of the way. So it's, it's difficult. Yeah, it, it is. It's very complicated. I really like how you said interlocking systems of oppression because it really feels like, you know, when you think about the criminal justice system being a system um, rooted in white supremacy, that part of the result is that it pits it pits us against each other, you know, as black women and black men both being oppressed. The system kind of is designed to not have us work together, but to kind of see each other as 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 enemies in, in a sense. It's true. It's true. We have to build each other up within our communities, but the, the system has not. And again, all of this is starting from chattel slavery. Right, right. And when when families were separated and men and women weren't able to build relationships in a way that fosters community, this, is, this was all set up from inception. So this mm-hmm. is something that just happened within the last 15, 20, 100 years. You know, this is 400 plus years of systematic oppression within our community. Exactly. And you talked about that in the article because you made a statement that the American legal system was built upon the inhumane enslavement of people of African descent and that policing is the results of efforts to maintain chattel slavery. And when I first read that statement, I thought, wow, some people are going to think that this is a really strong statement. I know for myself, I believe that to be true, but it wasn't that I could really see that I really had proof for feeling like that was true. Like I could see systematically how it was done. So for the people who may be hearing that, you know, for the first time and feel like it's a strong statement, you've talked about it a little bit, but what else would you say to help make it clear for them? Well, I want to cite four authors who've done a lot of work and research and written extensively in this area. Michelle Alexander, Kimberly Crenshaw, Carol Anderson, and Dr. Ibram Kendi. Their work is foundational in uh, promulgating these types of claims that policing is the institution that began from small, poor, non-slave-owning white men uh, being enlisted to catch enslaved uh, individuals who at the, at the time uh, were fugitives against the law because it was illegal to, you know, to try to uh, run away from your, from the plantation. So I would say you have to do the research and start where those authors and researchers and scholars have begun the work. But the reality is in slavery times, slave catchers weren't called police officers, but they were enlisted to enforce a system of laws to protect property. Again, that property was human chattel, was enslaved African, uh, enslaved people of African descent, but that's, that was the purpose of what, you know, these individuals were doing. And it was, again, set up in the same way to protect the community as police forces, to protect mm-hmm. communities and to restore order. So that's why things like when the president says we're restoring law and order, those are dog whistles for white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Because restoring order historically has meant keeping black people in place, restoring slavery, restoring the status quo, bringing slave enslaved individuals back to their property, quote unquote, property owners, slave masters. So it's really important to understand that that's the foundation of the system of, quote, restoring order, right? Mm-hmm. And we can look that directly to policing. Uh, now, I'm not saying there's you can't necessarily trace slave catchers through a formal police system, but ideologically, that's where the framework was initiated, which was in slave catching. That makes sense. So after um, the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, our society, like our society has evolved, the American society has evolved over time. Police forces Formal police forces weren't always the norm. There was community enforcement and community citizens, communal citizens protected areas because we haven't always been a global society, Mm -hmm. right? We didn't necessarily just travel to and from. People remained in their communities. And so there was a sense of community protection prior to the formal institution of police forces. But again, as migration of Black people began happening, And as black people began integrating white neighborhoods, that's when you see really the formalistic police forces, 
quote unquote, restoring order again to mm-hmm. keep black people in their place. So while you can't necessarily directly link slave catchers to common day police forces, you can see the ideological link and thread throughout those concepts. That was a great explanation. Thank you for breaking that down. I, I never looked at it before, but I will definitely read those authors that you mentioned now. So with that being said, do you agree with the defund the police movement? I think it's a really broad movement. I agree theoretically in defunding police systems and setting up institutions for community rehabilitation and restoration. It's a scary thing to think because people will always say, well, what about violent crime? And I think when you say defund the police, it means in some people's mind, it triggers, okay, well, then there will be no police. There will be no enforcement. And I don't think that's what the movement is calling for necessarily to defund all police and disband. It's not defund and disband. It's defund. The word means to reduce funds. (laughs) Police forces have received an astronomical amount of resources, financial resources from local and state government. When we move the money, it's it's about moving the money. When we Mm -hmm. defund, we're moving the money from police systems, from police forces, and putting it into education, counseling, treatment programs within communities. So it's not about disbanding police and closing down precincts. It's about moving some of the money around to provide resources and assistance to where crime begins. Crime begins Mm -hmm. with poverty. You know, when people don't have the resources they need, that's really when crime happens. So if we provide financial resources in communities that struggle with poverty, then we can reduce the fund, then we can reduce the need for quote unquote police presence to maintain order in those communities because people will be able to commune commune within their communities and then I don't want to say police themselves, but really moderate their behavior because their needs are met. Yeah. Their needs are satisfied. Absolutely. You in in your op ed, you gave an example of how the legal system has failed to protect black women. And having visited the sixteenth Street Church in Alabama where the four little black girls um were killed in that bombing. I've personally felt the weight of that history and the weight of that pain, but also that commitment to never forget them. You compared them to modern day Brianna Taylor. So I would love to hear more about those two instances and how, why you decided to compare those two instances as an example. I think they were the the those two examples are strikingly similar in that black girls were murdered, their bodies were taken, their lives were taken, and the offender was only convicted of a property crime. Mm-hmm. And then here we have almost an identical situation: a black woman's life is taken, she's killed, and the offenders are one. Offender is only charged with a property crime. And so it was just, to me, overwhelmingly clear that property meant more, means more in this country than than the bodies and lives of Black women and girls. There are many examples. You know, you can see historically the value of Black women diminished in this society. You look at um, uh, trafficking. You know, Black girls are trafficked at significantly higher rates than girls of any other race. Um, You look at child sex abuse. Black girls are abused at rates higher than any other sect of children. There was a study put out by the Georgetown uh, Law Center about the adultification of black girls. And it's not just as it relates to life and death, but even within the school system, um, there was there's a lot of research on um, school to prison pipeline as it relates to black boys and school suspensions. Um, But this study was really is really the beginning of a conversation about the sexual adultification of black girls in the school system and across the board. So when black girls report being sexually abused or crimes, sexual offense crimes committed against black women, they are believed less because they are seen as more promiscuous than other races. And, you know, to me, there's so much work you can talk about with how the American legal system 
has devalued black girls and black women. But those two examples, the 16th Street bombing that killed four little girls in church and the Breonna Taylor murder killing, to me, just seemed so clear. I thought it was a, a very useful analogy and a strong point to make. To me, there are so many more examples, which is really sad. It is sad. I, I've listening to you cite the study. I'm feeling very sad. <laughs> we definitely have a lot more work to do. And it really sheds some light on this next issue of vulnerability. It makes sense that it would be difficult for us as black women to be vulnerable when we've already talked about how the legal system has failed to protect us. And we've talked about how in some instances, there are some black men who are unwilling to protect us. So many times we feel like we have to be strong to protect ourselves. But you talk about vulnerability in the op-ed. And it's something that I talked about with um, one of my other brilliant guests that will be coming up. And it's something more and more of us are having to face because the whole strong black woman put on the cape and be superwoman thing is is getting tiring. There's just too much to to fight and to overcome. And we're getting exhausted. And we can see that in the effects on our mental health, the effects on our physical health. I see that as a physician. So I would love for you to share with us how you allowed yourself to be vulnerable before your law school class when the Breonna Taylor verdict came out. So this is, I'll start in a very roundabout way of explaining my own personal transformation and bringing vulnerability into my professional uh, persona. So when I was in law school 15 years ago, in law school, you're taught to view the law as an objective analyst. So the law is neutral and we are we as lawyers are simply um, uh, analyzing the law neutrally across the spectrum. The law is not favorable. Justice is blind. The law is not favorable towards anybody. You objectively analyze the law and apply the facts to any particular law. And the outcome is just it, it's based in precedent, meaning it's based in what has happened previously. And that's the that what that is what should happen in the future. So we have some consistency um, legally. That's the way our system is set up. So I spent my entire legal education in the early part of my career trying to fit myself into this objective analyst persona. And unfortunately, the law is not objective. And so that's a myth that is promulgated within legal education that the law is neutral and that any person that exist with their own personal biases and experiences, we all have them, can be an objective analyst of an unneutral system, right? So after I came to that realization, I, I thought, oh, I, the law is cre was created from the lens of a white male, heterosexual, Christian, cisgendered person. Mm -hmm. And so that's the measure of objectivity and neutrality. Me, I'm trying to fit my black woman self into that framework and it doesn't work. When I realized that, I thought, oh, I'm not wrong. They're all wrong. <laughs> yep. And that gave me the freedom to say, OK, wait a minute, I'm hurt. This is hard and I'm tired and I have all of these other feelings because the law had stolen my people, enslaved them and then created a caste system to where we could never really fully thrive. And we've been fighting these fights for centuries, and I'm really mad about it, and that's unfair. So when I was able to say that, that the law is unfair, then I, you know, I was able to be vulnerable with myself and admit that this is hard, this meaning the practice of law, living in America, being a Black person in America is hard, and understand that the only way that I can be effective uh, professionally is to communicate uh, those very real feelings and that reality to students as, as a professor. And when I made that decision, I decided that if I was able to help one student not have to struggle over the lifetime of their legal education and their law practice career, that it would be worth, then it would, that it would be worth exposing those vulnerabilities within myself. So that was, that, that was sort of what I balanced. Yeah, it's, I'm maybe out of the norm of being quote unquote, you know, we use quote unquote professionalism as a way to taper vulnerability mm -hmm. in different professions. I imagine as a physician, you see it too. It's probably quote unquote unprofessional to cry with the patient mm -hmm. you know, when they have a tough diagnosis. 
something like that. But that is not human nature. <laughs> Humans connect and commune with each other. So we're suppressing humanity when we suppress our vulnerability in efforts to be pseudo-professional, which is the standard that is not indicative to any human, but I would say is more indicative probably to the idea of based in chauvinism of a male-dominated professional workforce. Absolutely. There are so many things that you said there that just resonated with me. Definitely the first thing that you said about the law not being fair and there being inherent biases, I was taught the same thing in medical school, that we are completely objective. Medicine is objective. Yes, it's a science and an art. And we know that not to be true. We know that there are biases. We know that there's systemic bias in the medical system, which affects people's lives and, and can cause death. And then the part about this standard of professionalism, where I thought that there was something wrong with me because I am a, trying to fit a, a round piece into a square peg and it's not fitting. I totally felt like my humanity was being suppressed in the practice of this profession in the way that it was told to me to practice it which is why I sought out becoming a life coach and being able to do this work where I am able to express my being and not just my doing. So everything you just said resonated with me. And it's interesting that many of us are on this trajectory of rejecting so many of the things that we've been taught in order to fully come into our own power. And it, it's a beautiful thing to see. I agree. It is beautiful and it's healing because we're so broken, this world is tough and life is hard and not just because of racism, but just because life is hard for everyone. And when we can be human, it helps. And when we can have community and build relationships, it helps because we're supposed to do life together. We've become as a society, as an American society specifically, very individualistic. And I, I personally think that's why we see the crumbling of our uh, values system mm -hmm. um, as people, not that we all have the same ideological beliefs or that we were unified ever in governance ideologies. You know, the political spectrum is vast, but I think at the core of the human spirit lied the American spirit that people could work hard and make life good with whatever that meant for them and that that was available for everyone. And we worked collectively to make that available for everyone. But as we've become more individualistic, focused on capitalism and goods and materialism, we've lost that common good and we're unwilling to be vulnerable because vulnerability does not further those capitalistic goals. Hmm. Yeah. That's a great point right there. Vulnerability does not serve capitalism. On this show, I talk a lot about limiting beliefs. And I know you explained some of the beliefs that you had, that you had to let go of in order to be vulnerable. But what were some of your personal limiting beliefs or fears about being vulnerable that you had to overcome in order to step into this space of being full, expressing your humanity fully? I had to overcome the fear that I would be that I would not be accepted if I brought my full self professionally. So nobody wants a sensitive lawyer or, you know, a hippy dippy lawyer who talks about mindfulness or <laughs> <laughs> um, people wanna win, you know? Mm -hmm. People want passion. People want a bulldog. And so I put on that persona and tried really hard to be tough and mean and that's antithetical to my true nature um, and I got that critique from a supervisor and she said to me early on in my practice career I think your insecurities are making you put on a persona that's not you mm. and that was that was probably about 13 years ago and that stuck with me and I mean it's been and I'm still working on not putting on personas that I think fit the profession or whatever situation I'm in and just being myself. But it's really, really hard when you live when, so one thing I'm struggle, I struggled with persistently is taking up space, dealing with imposter syndrome. So when you feel like you don't deserve something or when you're in a space that you don't belong, belong or that you should just be happy to be in the room, you don't wanna take up more space by being vulnerable. And so you suppress again, suppress all of that, all of yourself just because 
you're feeling like I don't deserve to be here in the first place, or I'll say I, I was feeling like I don't deserve to be here in the first place. I don't have these test scores. I don't have degrees from this institution. I don't have this practice experience. I'm not this. I'm not that. So just be grateful to be in the room. If you're just grateful to be in the room, then you shouldn't have, you shouldn't shine a spotlight on yourself. You shouldn't be your full self and you shouldn't take up space. And so those person, those are the things that I personally struggle with taking up space. When I, when I deal with imposter syndrome and feel like I don't deserve to be in whatever situation I'm dealing with at the moment. Thank you for being so transparent and candid because I know that that is something that I have struggled with as well, not wanting to take up too much space and therefore not being my full authentic self. And for me, I know coaching, uh, working with my coach was one of the things that just really was that I was able to overcome some of those limiting beliefs. Not that they're all gone. I still struggle. It's a daily struggle. But what did you do? How did how were you able able to overcome those? I started with therapy. And it's not something that we talk about much. We meaning black people. Mm-hmm. We meaning lawyers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we meaning friends, people in friendship group. But I, I hit rock bottom emotionally and physically was dealing with some health challenges. And I decided that as much as I had a community of support, cared for and loved me and helped me, I had to choose healing. And I, I needed talk therapy to set me on the trajectory to physical well-being, spiritual well-being, and emotional well-being. So it really did start with therapy. And then it, I also changed my eating habits and my lifestyle. I changed the way I thought about stress. Um, One thing that was helpful for me, the first thing that I learned in therapy was that everything was a choice. If I'm unhappy professionally, that's a choice. (laughs) And if you say I have to have this job because I need money because my family has to eat, that's a choice that you're making to live Mm -hmm. that unhappiness and not to make changes. So coming to that realization um, was really instrumental and, you know, and has been instrumental, continues to be so in my, my growth, you know, my mindset that everything is a choice. That's number one. I love that. And again, your your vulnerability, even just in this conversation being vulnerable. One of the affirmations that I've had this week, and I call it a sore saying, is whatever you're not changing, you're choosing. And I have been working through that in some areas of my life that, okay, if I'm not changing this, I'm choosing this. And if I don't like this, I need to choose something different. So that what you just said really resonates. Another thing that I've been advocating, I said, it seems like we're all kind of on this trajectory is self-care. And then another one of our mutual friends, Kara, she's advocating self-care with her good, good girlfriends group. And I know that that's something that you're advocating, too, for us as black women. So tell me what your vision of self-care is. My vision of self-care is very holistic, mind, body, spirit. And I don't believe that uh, we are unitary beings. I think that we are spiritual beings as much as we are physical beings. Absolutely. That if we don't have full healing in all of those three areas, mind, body, spirit, that we won't have completion. And so self-care for me looks like dietary changes. And that doesn't mean necessarily veganism or raw foods diet. It means taking good care and thinking intentionally about what I put in my body and why I do it. I ate two pieces of cheesecake last night and I'm very happy about it because it felt, <laughs> you know, it's something that my body wanted and I felt like I was okay to do it. But I also walked yesterday. You know, I got outside and got some fresh air and I also drank a lot of water. So it's balance, having balance in those, in, in that space. Because I also have been on the extreme of being, I, I've never been diagnosed with an eating disorder, but just being so anxious about, you know, all the different health fads right now and like, oh, I can't eat this because it doesn't fall within this very strict regimen. Um, so finding balance within the physical space. Um, and then spiritually, having spiritual community and supporting your beliefs with whatever that is for you. So finding if you believe in, if you're a Christian, finding a good church, if you're Jewish, finding a synagogue, right? And finding people within your community of faith to support you because uh, religion while some people, while we can see some of the evils that have been promulgated from different religious ideologies and beliefs, we also know that 
religion can be a source of strength for many, many people. Um, and it's not to be done alone. The purpose of religion is to build, is to have community mm-hmm. with other humans and with the creator. And so finding other humans that support your faith, I think is really, really important spiritually. And then emotionally, knowing yourself and uh, caring for yourself. What do I actually like? Do I like massages or do I like running or do I like reading or do I like writing? Do I like watching Netflix and binging on TV shows? What do I like as a person? What makes me happy? So much of our life is spent getting to the next set of goals and achieving that we don't take time to stop and think about fulfillment in the moment. And that's something that I also worked on in therapy. Um, My therapist said, you're such a high achieving goal oriented person. You will, you, you achieve goals, but you get there bruised and battered. (laughs) And you're not stopping to enjoy the process and the moment. And I think that's emotion. I think that's the emotion of it is enjoying the moment, feeling the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs of life and being mindful about those experiences and sitting with those experiences in the moment, not just sweeping everything under the rug to get to the next goal or achievement. So that's what self-care looks like for me personally. That's a great vision of self-care. One of the things that you tie into self-care for us as as African-American women is you said that we need to send a clear message that we are unwilling to sacrifice ourselves to repair a system that we did not break. <laughs> so as we're embracing our self-care, but also knowing that we have been social justice warriors from the time we came to this country, what do you think our role is in this broken criminal justice system? I think our role is to speak the truth, but to also remember that sometimes our silence is powerful. Mm. And so I think the expectation is that me as a black law professor, when I I think the national statistic is 6% of law professors are African American. (laughs) And so 6% of I don't know how many, but that's a very low percentage in the in the legal academy, that the weight then falls on me to address every injustice in and out of the classroom, in the law school setting, out of the law school setting, in the world to address it and fix it. And sometimes for me, that rest and that self-care is to get through my class materials without having to be the one to fix it, to reach out to my white colleagues and say, you need to address these issues because I am not going because I need the space to do my work. I can't fix the world and be responsible for doing my work. (laughs) I need to do my work, and you all need to help carry this weight of creating the reforms that we need to really impact our criminal justice system, make those strides and those changes. Everyone needs to speak. And I think sometimes, if Black women, if we would say it's hard because if no one is speaking, then I feel like we feel the responsibility and the weight to speak up. But I just, I'm not good at not speaking up. I'm not good at what I'm advocating we do. But I just, I wonder, the question for me is how do we hold on to that space of it's not our responsibility always. Sometimes it is. And sometimes it's a shared responsibility. But just because other people are silent, I, I don't know. I'm still I'm still sort of crafting that in my mind. Yeah. As you're crafting it, I'm thinking about, you know, I, sometimes we have spoken up for so long and we've sort of, you know, been in the fight for so long. I think there's a fear, a fear of loss of control and a fear of what will happen if if there's this space that's left this vacated. You know, will the right people fill it? Will other people step up? And I think sometimes we have to let go of that need to control and we have to accept that what will be will be. If no one steps up, then the outcome of that might be that it sheds light on the big hole that's left there because we're not standing in it. And maybe that's what the situation needs. It needs light to see that there's this big gap that needs to be filled. And if we're always stepping in and always filling it, maybe the opportunity for the gap to be seen is is being hidden. And I think I that's where I want to be, Stephanie. That's that's what I see. But then I look at today and I literally credit Stacey Abrams with flipping mm. hopefully the state of Georgia 
and turning that state blue, giving those electorate votes to a Democratic candidate, which hasn't happened in decades, I think since Bill Clinton's first election in 1992. What if she hadn't sat in that space? Uh So I think about that and it's just, then will we be subjected to another four years of misogyny and white supremacy in the executive office? And I'm not calling the election. I don't know what's going to happen, but what if Stacey Abrams hadn't taken up the space and had, and what if she rested? So Uh, the implications are so great. I don't know what to say. I don't know. This was just, it was an idea and I'm putting it out there in, into the space, but I think they're conversations that we have to have. I tweeted out a link to my article and I dedicated it to Senator Harris, Stacey Abrams and uh, Sherilyn Eiffel, who is, uh, who works for the NAACP and leads the legal defense fund and has tried many cases at the Supreme Court in all levels of the judicial system and is just a powerhouse in the legal community. And Miss Eiffel, Sherilyn Eiffel tweeted back and she said, I love the words that you said and thank you for speaking them. Can't rest now, but I hear what you're saying. And she's right. And I hold that and it's hard because I, I also want to very much say that we can't rest, but we need to rest. And so I don't know. I don't know where we are in that space. I spoke that we need rest. I believe that we need rest. I also believe that the work that we do is critical to sustaining the type of life that we want this country, the type of country that we want to be in. It's hard. It is hard, Tiffany. And I absolutely agree. So my, I think this conversation needs to continue and and we need to be having it for ourselves. One of my hopes is that in sisterhood and sort of creating strengthening sisterhood and expanding our sisterhood that that's where we get some of our rest right that we can hand off the baton to one of our sisters and we can take our rest and then they can hand it off and they can take their rest and then it circles back to us that we have to get back to this place of community and trusting each other and being able to lean on each other so that we don't burn ourselves out and that we can have rest but still move forward and make progress that is beautiful. I love that you said that. Thank you for closing the link, closing the gap in, in that sort of logical link for me. That makes so much sense. I think it is about passing the baton and shared responsibility within our own community. Absolutely. I saw Absolutely. a meme that said black women can trust no one but black women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't necessarily mm-hmm. think that's true, but I felt the spirit of, of that meme. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. And where can people follow you? You mentioned your Twitter. Uh, What other social media handles do you have? So Twitter is really my only social media handle. And my Twitter name is at LawProfTJ. I am on LinkedIn, Tiffany Jeffers. So those are the two best places uh, to find me. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Tiffany. And You have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you so much for having me. This was a beautiful conversation and I really appreciate being, having the chance to have a voice on your show. And it was good to see you. It was good to see you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of SOAR. If you'd like to reach me for coaching, you can reach me at www.stephaniebrowncoaching.com. And if you want to follow SOAR, you can follow Sisters Overcoming and Rising on Instagram or Stephanie Brown Coaching on Facebook. Goodbye for now.